EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. I'm your host, Ross Orpit, and today we're going to talk a little bit about some medications. And so medicine is an ever-evolving field. The amount of medication options for disease processes often feels staggering and overwhelming at this point. Diabetes is no exception. It used to be all that we had to worry about was metformin and insulin. And then we started getting different short and long acting insulins, which, okay, was still manageable. But over the last decade, we've had a flood of oral agents come on the market. And each one of these classes lowers insulin through different mechanisms. It becomes confusing trying to remember which of these medications do what. Some can cause severe hypoglycemia and some don't. Which of these medications should catch our eye on a patient's medication list? So today we're going to go through these classes and try to differentiate which ones we need to worry about. And at the end, we'll talk about a really good tip to keep all of these straight on your next shift. Since we're talking about medications, we of course asked for our emergency pharmacist, Lance Ray, to come help us out. Lance is no stranger to the show and we're super lucky to have him back on the show today to help us sort this out. Lance, welcome back. Thanks, Ross. Thanks for having me. Good to be back. Always good to chat about medications and try to clear the muddy waters on uh, what's going on out there. There are so many medications, like you mentioned, and it's really hard to keep them all straight. Exactly. So I guess we should first start this topic out with just a primer on kind of how our body normally handles glucose in our bloodstream. Glucose is in your bloodstream. After a meal, uh, postprandial, your body recognizes that, right? And your pancreas releases insulin. That insulin's floating around in your body and attaches to insulin receptors on your cells. Think of maybe all the cells in your body for the most part and helps uptake that glucose into the cells. Type one diabetes, when you have an absolute deficiency of insulin, your pancreas just does not release insulin. Uh, that's a big problem. So you have to have you know, from day one or from, from whenever that's diagnosed, it's usually uh, in, in childhood. And uh, you're on insulin for the most part, unless you get a pancreas transplant uh, for, for lifelong. Uh, thankfully, there's a lot of new treatment modalities and uh, insulin pumps, and they're really getting advanced. Type 2 diabetes, which is sort of uh, later onset diabetes, uh, a lot of times associated with uh, a lot of comorbidities, uh, metabolic syndrome is more of a insulin resistance, and it's gradual, and you might not need insulin at the beginning, but eventually all of your insulin receptors sort of stop working as well. And again, you can start with a oral drug. Uh, we can help the insulin receptors be re receptive, for lack of a better term. But then a lot of folks often end up needing insulin. So that's kind of the rundown on the, the pathophys behind diabetes. Super interesting. Okay. So when we talk about diabetic medications, how do you recommend we break these down? Yeah. So... Again, like you mentioned, so many medications out there. So I think it's helpful to kind of put these in, in different buckets. I like to divide these medications into our hypoglycemic agents, ones that really lower blood sugar, and that's what they're supposed to do. Insulin is one of these, and there's some other agents that help insulin be released. Uh, and then non-hypoglycemic agents. So these are agents that might help sensitize those insulin receptors or 
do some some things to glucagon and other mechanisms to the pancreas to to where they sort of suppress one thing and maybe activate another, but they're not overtly sort of hypoglycemic agents. So we've got our hypoglycemic agents like insulin. We have our non-hypoglycemic agents, which are more adjuncts, um, but they they still can be a little. So we'll we'll dive into those. So let's start with the hypoglycemic agents. Yeah. So obviously a cornerstone of hypoglycemic agents is insulin. There's lots of different types of insulin out there. I know that can be intimidating. I recommend doing like a Google image search on insulin, pharmacokinetics, or types of insulin. And it can give you a good graph instead of me just listing off a bunch of numbers and hours on how these work. So our insulins range and are different mainly from their onset and their length of action. Otherwise, they're all essentially the same. And, you know, if you take a short acting insulin, you know, a certain number of units, you know, for, for 24 hours, you could add that all up and kind of get the same as a Lantus, a long acting insulin. So in terms of the units, a unit is a unit. And I think the old, a unit of insulin uh, was originally described as the amount of insulin that's given to like a one kilogram rabbit to lower their glucose by a certain amount. So a unit of insulin is very standardized, but when you apply that over a long time frame or a short time frame, they can obviously be different. Sounds like a very English me measurement. <laughs> it's like feet. <laughs> Rabbit. <laughs> what other medications do we have in the hypoglycemic? Yeah. Agents? So then our other big kind of hypoglycemic class of agents is our sulfonylureas. And there's essentially three of these, glimipiride, glipizide, and glyburide. They all have brand names that are associated with them also. These are hypoglycemic. These directly stimulate the insulin release from a pancreatic beta cells. And so it's just like insulin, these are important to have carbohydrates at the same time. We counsel to Patients need to use these at mealtime, and if not mealtime or an unfortunate case of an overdose, they can cause profound hypoglycemia. Yeah, these can be scary overdoses, and they can cause a lot of rebound hypoglycemia and kind of hang out for a while too, yeah? Oftentimes, they may require going on a D10 drip, especially if they took too much of them or have an overdose and, and be observed for prolonged periods of times. And they're especially scary in kids where we talk about even just one of these pills in a kid might cause profound life-threatening hypoglycemia. Other than glucagon or, or dextrose for these patients who are hypoglycemic from sulfonylureas, are there any other medications we think of in this overdose? Yeah, it's a great question. Octreotide is, is one of them that we would use in a sulfonylurea overdose, and it's got an interesting mechanism. And it actually works downstream of, of where the sulfonylureas are working on the, the beta cells of the pancreas. Uh, and it essentially actually su just suppresses that insulin release from the pancreas downstream of where the sulfonylureas are stimulating. But just as you alluded to, it certainly goes in the sort of one pill can kill category or or, or if not, at least one pill can, can certainly harm a child if they were to take this. And I'm glad you mentioned the rebound hypoglycemia. D50 will st stimulate pancreatic insulin release if it's a type two diabetic and you can still release insulin. So just by that virtue of giving D50, you can actually cause some insulin release too. Of course it's necessary, but that's a lot of times why we will end up 
starting a D10 on someone to get a bit more of that sort of steady dextrose infusion. Does that do it for our hypoglycemic agents? Are we on to our non-hypoglycemic? Yeah, so that's essentially it. You know, or some of our non-hypoglycemia agents, you know, disclaimer, some of these can cause a little hypoglycemia, but but really the insulin and sulfonylureas are, are the big ones for the hypoglycemics. So what's in our non-hypoglycemic category? So our first line therapy for diabetes type 2 is metformin. Uh, metformin's one of the top five most prescribed drugs in the U.S. Um, so it does not cause hypoglycemia. Like I mentioned earlier, it really just sensitizes the insulin receptors on the cell to uptake insulin. Uh, and actually metformin, probably a reason that it's number five most prescribed drug in the U.S. right now is that it's, it's got a lot of off-label uses too. It's been shown to uh, help promote weight loss, uh, slows cardiovascular disease progression, probably through that. We're finding some uh, evidence that it just kind of improves overall gut health, uh, can improve fertility, uh, and slow tumor progression. It's a little more kind of sciencey stuff, but it's a lot of a lot of kind of resurgence of, of research around metformin these days. So metformin is really a mainstay in the treatment of diabetes, and it does not cause hypoglycemia. Great. So metformin doesn't cause hypoglycemia. So then I don't really need to worry about this medication, right? Not, not, not so quick. So it can cause lactic acidosis, right? And in patients are at higher risk for this lactic acidosis if they have renal insufficiency too. Uh, the mechanisms are pretty complicated, but the takeaway is that if a patient is in lactic acidosis and it's say, deemed to be metformin associated, uh, it does have somewhere from a 30 to 50% mortality rate. So it is something that's very serious that we, we do take seriously. Wow. So can you talk to me about the classic patient that we see this happen in? Like, when should I think about it pre-hospitally and, and what is such a patient going to You know, what does a patient look like when they have lactic acidosis? They're, they're sick. They've got a metabolic acidosis. They might be trying to compensate uh, respiratory, you know, they might sort of look like they have a DKA, um, uh, but they may or may not have a know, hyperglycemia. Uh, but essentially, you know, they look sick. Uh, this may be a patient with lots of comorbidities. They might have some real insufficiency also. Um, but the lactate that we get on these folks with, with a true metformin lactic acidosis isn't like a three or four level of lactate. This is like kind of a, what we call a type two lactic acidosis. And, and this is like a lactate of 10 to 20 that these patients have a severe lactic acidosis and, and they can be very sick. And which type of patient gets this? Like what sets you up for it? Yeah, it's patients that are taking a lot of metformin, maybe more than is what's prescribed or patients with chronic kidney disease. Um, we, you know, there's a cutoff on where we try not to use metformin below a creatinine clearance of, of 30 to 45. Uh, so really someone with a pre-existing or maybe an, a, an, an acute kidney injury. Okay. So just to summarize, make sure I understand that correctly. We should think about this in a patient who either has admitted to taking a large amount of metformin or for whatever reason, they've placed themselves at risk for an acute kidney injury or, or acute on chronic kidney injury. So somebody maybe has some un underlying renal disease and hasn't been eating, hasn't been drinking fluids, or, or for whatever reason may have developed a kidney injury. And then they're going to look almost like they have DKA because they have such a high lactic acidosis that they're trying to compensate with uh, fast, deep respirations that they you may even see those Kuzmal-type respirations in them. Yep. I think that's a great summary. Just a really profound metabolic acidosis. So these are the classics. What about the newer agents? What, yeah. What are these and what do they do? Yeah. So we're just really scraping the tip of the iceberg here with, with medications uh, for, for diabetes. There's a whole bunch of uh, newer ones that have come on the market in the last um, 
10 years or so. There's some other subcutaneous injections that aren't insulin, but they're insulin-like, they're GLP-1 agonists or, or glucagon-like peptide 1. And, and essentially, these are sub-Q injections. The first one that was approved around 2010 was Vectoza, so you might have heard of that. And that was a once-daily sub-Q injection. Trulicity is another one, and Ozempic is a newer one you may have seen commercials about, and I'm not here to endorse any of these, but they are new drugs, and the Trulicity and the Ozempic are once-weekly sub-Q injections, and so these are very uh, appealing for, for folks. Um, sometimes they're prescribed for obesity also. Um, they can suppress appetite and uh, inhibit glucagon release and do sort of a, a variety of things. They can stimulate insulin from the pancreas also. But it's really important that it does this differently than those sulfonylureas we're talking about. Insulin's only released from the pancreas in the presence of glucose. So it's a glucose-dependent insulin release. So therefore, hypo hypoglycemia is rare in these. And like I said, uh, a lot of these medications are once weekly. They come as uh, pens, like a subcutaneous pen where uh, patients can dial in a specific dose. So you might see this and say, oh, that's an insulin pen. Well, not quite, but these are, these are new drugs. They're, they're pretty popular drugs uh, used for, um, again, like I said, weight loss and also type 2 diabetes. And you said they're not supposed to cause hypoglycemia because of the mechanisms that you just went through, but that they can occasionally? Is there anything that might tell us that, that this might have happened or is it kind of just rare and yeah. you have to know about it? Right. Great point. So, you know, essentially if you see a patient and they're hypoglycemic and that's the only medication they take or that's one of them and you, and you know that they don't take insulin, a lot of pharmacists feel that the hypoglycemia can happen with these and it's probably underreported. What are the other medications? Then kind of we go down a list of a whole bunch of other medications. There's a lot of diabetic medications that we don't use as much anymore, but a few of them that you might see are DPP. P4 inhibitors. These are linagliptin and citagliptin are, are two. The brand names on those are Trigenta or Genuvi. I don't have a whole lot to say about these, except, you know, they really don't cause a lot of hypoglycemia. They're more sort of diabetic, you know, maintenance medications. But finally, I do want to talk for a minute about a class of medications called SGLT2 inhibitors. So this is a new class of medication and they're, they're gaining multiple indications. In other words, you can use them for things other than diabetes. They're gaining new indications for uh, heart failure. And, I, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But so the uh, mechanism of these SGLT2 inhibitors, I'll give you an example of some of the names, is uh, canaglovlosin or impaglovlosin. And, uh, <laughs> Super it's easy a, to remember. <laughs> it's a tongue twister. But uh, glovlosin is the, uh, is the suffix on these that, that do it is consistent throughout this whole class. Um, so the mechanism of these is interesting. So it's this like sodium glucose transport protein number two, SGLT2. Well, this can also act as sort of a osmotic diuretic effect, you know, wherever large molecules go, water follows that. And so that's how it gained a FDA approval for sort of heart failure. That's how I think that I tie the mechanism into how it can kind of maybe mildly reduce some fluid overload in heart failure and, and keep folks kind of euglycemic because the whole heart failure, diabetes, metabolic syndrome all kind of go hand in hand. Now, there's an interesting side effect of these drugs that you'll read in the package insert. A lot of these kind of were evolved uh, and were reported more post-approval, post-marketing, but it's euglycemic ketoacidosis. So it's these can result in a sort of DKA. This happens most when patients are uncontrolled, right? This uncontrolled diabetic, but they're on this SGLT2 inhibitor. And so they have high levels of uh, glucose in the body, but it's all being excreted out pretty quickly. So a patient ends up being euglycemic, but there's a, still a suppression of insulin uh, happening and 
increased lipolysis and increased sort of uh, intracellular breakdown of, of, of fatty acids, just like a DKA uh, pathophysiology and, uh, and ketone production. And what's tricky about this is patients can show up in a, in a euglycemic state. They don't have that high, high, high reading on the glucometer. They might have a blood sugar of 150 or 180, but they're also in DKA. Yeah, that's scary and seems unfair because uh, <laughs> historically we've defined DKA, you know, as a, a, one of the criteria of blood sugar being above 200. And so these patients will show up still with elevated blood sugars, but often less than 200, but still have large amounts of ketone bodies in their bloodstream when we test them and they'll look like they're in DKA and they are in DKA, even though their sugar is only 150 or 180 because of this weird mechanism that you talked about. And so seems unfair, something yeah. you need to look out for. Yeah. It's super unfair. You know, the, the, the patient may look like they're DKA. They might have those Kuzmal respirations. They might be blown off uh, CO2 and, and what, what tricks you until you take their you know, beta hydroxybutyrate, their ketones, and and you know, take their pH and 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 kind of get a whole whole panel back, which is tough to do pre-hospital. You you won't know this, so sort of be wary if you see this this class of medication and patient looks like they're in DKA and they're euglycemic. Um, they they still could be in a ketoacidotic state. All right, so that concludes all the classes of of new medications now for these diabetic patients. How do we keep all of these medications safe? You threw out, I mean, we just talked about the classes, but within each of these classes, there's maybe three, four medications that all have different names. And so how do we keep all of these straight when we're in a stressful situation with a sick patient? Yeah, it's really tough, Ross, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. You know, sometimes you just have to look these up, but thankfully we have devices around us. We can we can look these up. I would maybe put these in a gradient from insulin, so urea, down to the GLP-1 agonist has been able to cause some hypoglycemia. And then finally with that uh, that last class, the empaglovlosin and canaglovlosin, uh, the SGLT2 inhibitors that, yeah, maybe they don't cause a lot of hypoglycemia, but you might want to be worried uh, about a euglycemic DKA. Yeah, I'm with you. That's totally what I do in the emergency department. I don't have any of these medications memorized, but I know that when a patient's coming in hypoglycemic, I need to worry about insulin, sulfonylureas, and maybe GLP-1s. And then I know that I need to worry about euglycemic DKA with SGLT2 inhibitors. And then I know I need to worry about lactic acidosis in those rare patients and metformin. And then I kind of care less about the DPP-4s. <laughs> yeah, there's DPP-4s. There's a bunch of other diabetic medications that we don't use a whole lot anymore. And I care about all meds and I, I treat them all fairly, but I, I, I'm less concerned. We don't see them as, as, as much and they certainly don't cause a large degree of hypoglycemia. 